Okay. Somebody shut off the power so my computer's down. We'll have to wait a minute. Anybody got a testimony? Any good news? So we are in lesson four of the study of Hebrews. We've, uh, we've come to chapter two. So far the author has told us that Messiah Yeshua is the image of the living God, so much so that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. That Messiah radiates in the glory of God, radiates the glory of God. That Messiah Yeshua created all things. That Messiah Yeshua is the builder of a house for the Lord. A house is the family of God. We are the family of God. We are the sons and brothers. And it's Messiah who's done all of this. The author has also shown us that Yeshua is superior to angels. And as we go into chapter 2, he will continue to do that. He's already told us Yeshua is superior to angels as his name is superior to theirs. He is Yeshua ben Elohim, Yeshua the Son of God. Not just that, but he's so much superior to angels that he's worshipped by angels. And he's going to continue to show that Yeshua is superior to angels through uh, into chapter 2. But before he does that, he first gives us an exhortation in the light of the facts that he's already presented. In this exhortation, we may find part of the reason for this long discourse on angels and why he's writing this letter. It's a discourse that began in chapter 1, verse 5, and it's going to continue all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2. Before we begin with this exhortation, I want you to keep something in mind. We have to keep in mind that the author has told us, and I made a point of making sure that we understood that Yeshua is superior to all things, to include angels. Not just angels, but the prophets, all the messengers of God, the prophets, the kings of Israel, even Moses himself. His words outweigh Torah, which is where he goes next. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. We see the problem here, and it's that the author has heard that some are drifting away. More than likely drifting away in the sense that they're replacing Messiah Yeshua with former things in their lives. Non-Messianic things. Non-Messianic Judaism. What an exhortation, though, for us today that we don't drift away. You know, there are those who have been in our movement that have drifted away, some who have renounced the Messiah. There's one who drifted away from the Messiah while he was attending another congregation in town. His name was Brian Tibbet, who now is a spokesman, mind you, for Jews for Judaism. Now, there are those who would say that's a problem. You know, that's the problem with the Messianic movement. The focus on keeping the law and not on Yeshua. And all I can say to that is not in this place. The focus here is Yeshua. Amen? 
But these people, I'm going to tell you something, that these people are really those who didn't know Messiah Yeshua in the first place. I don't believe that those people that drift away like that ever knew the master in the first place. And I know scripture says a dog returns to its vomit, which is exactly what's happening to Brian. But if you know the saving grace of Messiah Yeshua, the love with which he loves you, the healing that he's done in your life, experience the relationship that's available to you, then I think it's near impossible to renounce Messiah completely and turn away. As the writer of Hebrews will say, how will you escape after forsaking such a great salvation? Understand that those who do say that there's a problem within the Messianic movement should consider that it might be a problem in their movement as well. The phenomenon of people falling away from the Messiah is not only found in the Messianic movement, the same problem we see elsewhere. We're not alone in some drifting away. There are those in other parts of the church that are drifting away as well, back into the things of the world, not always totally renouncing Messiah, but drifting so far back into the world that you wouldn't know that they know the Messiah in the first place. And you know, doctrines like once saved, always saved don't help in this phenomenon either. So here, the author admonishes his readers not to drift away. And what I think he's driving at is not a total renouncing of Messiah, but drifting away from the understanding that Messiah is above all, because that's the focus here. That his words are not above all other words. Putting something between you and the relationship, your relationship with Messiah. Something else in, 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 in your walk through life. Be it angels, which he's driving at here, or Moses, the law he gave. Because there's nothing greater, there's nothing higher than the Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And let me say... There's an emphasis. You can have an emphasis on keeping the law that can cause you to drift away from Messiah as well. You can begin to rely on the comfort of tradition and the expertise of your keeping the law rather than your relationship with Messiah Yeshua. And the author has told us that Yeshua is superior to all other messengers. And he's going to tell us that includes Moses. And next he'll speak of Torah. The angels that the angels gave. The writer will use an argument that's called next Kolva Homer. And it's an argument which argues from the light to the heavy. Let's read it. He says in verse 2 For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? You know, the word for binding here is rendered different in many different versions of the Bible. The King James says steadfast. But I always like the New American Standard. I always like to look at it when I'm studying the Messianic writings. And it says unalterable. And that's what I like. And we'll speak more of it in a moment. But I want to talk about this argument, Kol Vahomer. As I said, it, it argues from the light to the heavy. And do you see the argument here? Do you see how he stated that? He has shown that Messiah is superior to the angels in chapter 1. And not just that, 
but he told us he's superior to all other messengers. He's told us that his message is superior to all other messages. And now he says of the message, message of angels, which is the Torah, if violated, it incurred a penalty of even death. How much more the message of Messiah, who's greater than angels. His words are greater than Torah. So this argument really relies on the audience agreeing with the light part of it. In other words, the audience has to agree that the Torah is unalterable. Otherwise, the argument falls apart. If they thought, as many do today, that the Torah doesn't apply to us, then the Kolva-Homer argument, of course, fails. If I think the Torah is nothing, and you tell me that Messiah Yeshua's salvation is greater than Torah then that is exactly what, I've, what you've said. You said the Messiah's salvation is nothing too. How is what's greater than nothing? Everything's greater than nothing, right? However, if I value Torah and I realize its importance and I'm familiar with, with the severe punishments that were levied for violation of its commandments and you say how much more Messiah's salvation, then I've elevated Messiah's salvation to the level it deserves, you see. Which is no problem here in, to the people he's writing, to the audience, because they are Torah-observant Messianic Jews. The first century believers though, uh, and Gentiles who fellowshiped with them were Torah-observant and as we saw in the book of Romans, when non-Jews started to stray from Torah observance, a Torah observant lifestyle, or when they were insensitive to the Jewish Torah observant lifestyle, problems arose. So we know even in the diaspora, Messianic Jews were Torah observant, as they could be in the diaspora. And we can see this love of Torah and Torah observance elsewhere in Scripture. Remember, he's writing to Messianic Jews in Israel, more than likely Jerusalem. Well, let's look at what we can read about these Messianic Jews in Acts chapter 21 and verse 20. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews believed? All of them are zealous for the Torah. They have been informed that you teach all Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to the customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved, then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but you yourself are living a life in obedience to Torah. So what we learn here is that the Messianic Jews in Jerusalem were Torah observant, and not only that, they were zealous for the Torah. They had a great zeal for God's law. And so we learn other things. They made Nazarite vows, which is in Torah. They went to the temple, participated in the temple services, and offered sacrifices. Not only that, we learned that Paul himself was Torah observant and went to the temple to offer sacrifices. So keeping in mind that the people the writer is writing to are Torah observant and zealous for the Torah and understand its importance and the severe punishments rendered for violations, you can see how effective this argument would be. 
And when he says the message spoken by, of angels, he's referring again to the Torah. The Messianic writings, you know, are really about the only place that you can find this idea that the Torah was given by angels. You can find some Jewish traditions that lean in this direction, that the Torah was given through angels. But those traditions really happened much later than the first century. One that comes to mind, and uh, one I put up here was Midrash Rabbah, Exodus 29. And it says, Rabbi Abdimi of Haifa said, 22,000 angels descended with God on Sinai. As it said, chariots of God are 22,000. So here's one, but this doesn't even say that the Torah was spoken by angels or given by angels. It just says they were there. There's another in Pasikta Rabadi that says the angels argued about who would explain God's Torah to Israel. But then they concede that as God spoke these words, there was no explanation required. So they didn't take part in that either. The point here is that this concept of angels giving the Torah at Sinai is really only found in the Messianic writings. It's more than likely taken from Deuteronomy chapter 33, which says, verse 1, the Lord came from Sinai and came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south. And from his mountain slopes, surely it is you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down, and from you you receive instruction, the law Moses gave. Now, that isn't quite as clear as if you read it in the Septuagint. And this author is quite familiar with the Septuagint. It reads this way in the Septuagint. It says, the Lord is come from Sinai and has appeared to us from Seir and has hastened out of Mount Paran with ten thousands of Cadiz, or you could say angels. On his right hand were his angels with him. And he spared his people. All of his sanctified ones are under his, thy hands. They are under thee. And he, and he received of his words the law which Moses charged us, an inheritance to the assemblies of Jacob. So the point is this, the angels who are inferior to Messiah, the writer is telling us, instituted Torah. Paul tells us something similar in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. He says the law was put into effect by angels. Stephen, in his famous last sermon, says the same thing, that the Torah was instituted by angels. And the author tells us it was binding, in other words, unalterable, Stable, steadfast, firm, violations were punished. And he's saying something else that we should all know. The Torah is unalterable, unchangeable. You can't change it. Listen to, listen to it again. For if the message spoken by angels was unalterable... And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Note that it says every violation of Torah, or we could say every sin, received its just punishment. And it speaks of the wilderness here. You know why it speaks of the wilderness here? Because there God was in complete control and his punishments were rendered. 
And they're rendered to show us how serious his commands are. Because by the time we get to the first century, punishments dictated by God were often not upheld. And if we look at things today, we see that most are never upheld. As an example, God says this in Exodus chapter 31, verse 14. Observe the Sabbath, because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. So God says, here's the punishment for breaking the Sabbath, for violating the Sabbath. You must be put to death. Lo and behold, we go to Numbers chapter 15, and what does it say in verse 32? While the Israelites in the desert were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done with him. The Lord said to Moses, this man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the Israelites took him outside the camp and stoned him to death, as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, when God said, if you violate my Sabbath, you must be put to death, he wasn't fooling around. You were put to death. And what does this, what does it show us? It shows us how serious God is about the Sabbath. Now, by the time we get to the first century, as I said, this was relaxed. Undoubtedly, maybe due part in part because of the Romans being in control. And of course, in our day and age, it's not done. Because if we were to stone somebody for violating the Sabbath day, we'd all go to jail for murder. Right? For the rest of our lives. But what we should understand is just that because we have relaxed the penalty, God is just as serious about the Sabbath day. God's judgment is not diminished. It's still dead serious about his Sabbath day. He's serious about it, folks. Now, often we think because there's no civil penalty in our society any longer, or that a lightning bolt doesn't strike us if we work on the Sabbath day, that God has somehow changed his mind. But consider this. The exile of the Jewish people off the land by Nebuchadnezzar lasted 70 years. And the reason is given for this 70 years. And it is because the people failed to give the land its one year rest for 490 years. And so God decreed one year of dispersion for each of the Sabbath rests not given to the land. And so the land got its Sabbath rest, 70 years. Teaching us that God is patient, long-suffering, but there comes a time, he's waiting for us to repent, but there comes a time when he will enforce his word right down to the last jot and tittle. So the next time, you're tempted to disobey the command of God and keep the Sabbath holy. Remember how important this is to God. Because what the writer is saying is that the Torah is binding, steadfast, unalterable, unchangeable. The laws in the world may change as society changes and as technology changes. Our laws change to accommodate such things. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, not so the word of God. It's unchangeable. There may be portions that because of circumstances in the world can't be kept. As an example, instructions regarding the sacrifices and the temple services. 
But understand also that those laws and instructions are still in effect. And when the temple services resume, those laws and instructions will be followed to the letter, to the last jot or tittle. Laws regarding the Sabbath violations may not be able to be enforced by our society, but when Messiah returns, there's going to be some consequences for every violation because the Torah is unalterable. And that's what makes this argument so effective. Because if you don't believe this, then the argument fails. So the writer is saying, as an example, if the command of God given through angels not to work on the Sabbath day drew a death penalty, and the message of angels was inferior to the message of the Son of God, how do we hope to escape if we ignore this great salvation that was given by the Son of God? He says, how shall we escape? What does he mean by escape? Well, Paul knew. He told the Thessalonians. I think I saw it up here earlier in chapter 5, verse 3. While the people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. The writer is saying, how do we hope to escape the judgment of God if we ignore this great salvation that was given by God through Messiah Yeshua? The only hope of salvation from this judgment is through Messiah Yeshua. There's one way and only one way to escape the judgment that's coming to this age. And that's why he says, this salvation, how do we hope to escape? And in verse 3 he says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him. <clears throat> now it would seem that he and uh, that those he's writing to were not eyewitnesses. He and those who he's writing to were not eyewitnesses of the Messiah's ministry. But that they had the gospel preached to them by apostles or at least one who had witnessed Messiah's ministry. He says, confirmed by those who had heard the testimony. Those, he says, not by one, but those. Because the Torah declares in the mouths of two or three witnesses all things must be established. Well, all of the things that I've been telling you this week, how much more testimony do we have than that? Think about it. Even at the start of Yeshua's ministry, before he did one thing, Yochanan, who we call the Immerser, who's called the Immerser, or we call John the Baptist, tells us this in chapter 3, verse 27. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can, can testify that I said, I am not Messiah, but sent ahead of him. The bridegroom belongs to the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. He speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent 
speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. How shall he escape? Yochanan tells us the same thing, that Yeshua is Messiah, the Son of God, that he came not in the usual way, but he came from above, he came from heaven, and he speaks the very words of God, and whoever believes those words will escape the judgment that's coming and will inherit eternal life. And so we have the same testimony from Yochanan, We have the same testimony from the apostles. We have the same testimony from the writer of Hebrews. And we have the same testimony from Yeshua himself. We should have no problem accepting exactly what the writer of Hebrews has to say. That Yeshua is the son of God. And there's nothing higher than he or his words. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God also testified to it. Listen, it says, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, God also testified. We not only have the testimony of John, we not only have the testimony of the apostles and Yeshua, we have the testimony of God himself. He testified with signs and wonders. And the word for signs there is the, is the Greek says, a sign, that by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known. You see, the word for sign means exactly that. And the signs were given to show that this man was Messiah, the Son of God, and the salvation of the world. This is his distinction from all others. This is how he's different from all others. And Paul tells us that the greatest sign that he was declared to be the Son of God was that he was resurrected. Amen? Amen? Amen. And he gave us signs in his ministry. There were others that were resurrected. But each of the miracles he did was a sign to distinguish him. And the word for wonder there, is the Greek word means a miracle performed by anyone, a prodigy, a portent. A prodigy, a portent, something that was out of the ordinary, so miraculous that it inspired people with awe and wonder for those who saw and heard. And over and over in Yeshua's ministry with his words and with his deeds, we see that people were in awe of what he said and what he did. Finally, the word for miracles in the Greek means strength, power. A miracle, something that man is incapable of, but something that is nothing for God to do. And we can certainly see that in the life of Yeshua, calming the sea, the withering of a tree, the multiplying of fishes and loaves, and on and on and on. And so how would signs and wonders and miracles prove that Yeshua was the Messiah and offered salvation? Because I can tell you that if you're into rabbinics and you read rabbinic writings, often they will tell you that miracles like Yeshua performed were proof of nothing. 
But let me say this, when it comes to first century thought, if you really want to know what they thought in the first century, one of the best historical documents we have of what they thought about in the first century are the Gospels and the Messianic writings. Rabbinic writings of the time in later years are often polemics against the Messianics. The things Messiah did were discounted. Others or others were shown to have done the same thing. So miracles and signs and wonders, are, are they proof of Messiah, of this great salvation? Well, let me tell you this. When John, Yochanan, the immerser, sent his disciples to inquire of Yeshua if he was the one or, if he was the one or should we expect another, this is what was said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Yeshua replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So as proof of his messiahship, and that, yes, indeed, he was the one who was to come, he tells John, what do you see? And then he lists off miracles. And what were the miracles? Restoration of the afflicted. So what we learn from the text is that these healings were something that would be meaningful to John, and would convey to him that Messiah was just not the Lamb of God, as he had already stated, but he was also the expected king. And we also know by the words of Isaiah in chapter 35, verse 4, it says, Be strong, do not fear, for God will come. And he will come with a vengeance and with divine retribution. And he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Should Israel have noted that this was the Messiah from the signs and wonders that he did? Well, only if you believe Isaiah. Would this have been a comfort to John in the prison? Well, I guess it would have been, wouldn't it? So we have these testimonies by the Spirit of God that Yeshua is the Messiah. But you know, the Spirit didn't stop there with just the miracles of Messiah. He didn't stop there. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given a spirit of a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, interpretation of tongues. All of these, work, all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives to each one as he determines. And so the Spirit continues to work in the lives of the disciples. And the Spirit continues to work and inspire today. Let me tell you something. 
Each of us has a testimony of what Messiah Yeshua has done in our lives. Healing signs that point to Messiah Yeshua being exactly what the author is telling us. These testimonies are more powerful than any argument you're ever going to get in from Scripture. They are the real evidence of the risen Messiah working in the lives of people who cry out to him for mercy. So I say, let us be more vocal in our giving our testimony as to what Messiah has done. Amen? Let's bring the worship team forward.